All right. Hey, uh, with that, let's jump into a message for today. Um, We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke. And today we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. We're on page 843 is where we continue on this morning. And last week, uh, we discovered that to live like Jesus, and we're on this journey where we're kind of talking about, what does it look like to live like Jesus, to, to really truly be a follower? This is a discipleship series and a discipleship segment of the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we discovered that to live like Jesus is to go out with the message of Jesus. Jesus sends us out with this message of hope and restoration and, 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 rest, and restoration. And, and uh, this week, Jesus is going to say, to live like me is not just to go out with a message, but also to live that message. Jesus says the gospel and to be a Christ follower is not just about gospel messaging, but also about today gospel neighboring. We don't just have a message of hope. We are called to live lives of hope in conjunction with that message. So we pick up the story today. It's an interesting one. It's one many of you have heard, and yet I think it's going to challenge you in a fresh way this morning. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, uh, I'll pause this right there uh, for a few minutes. One of the things I want you to know is that this passage is only found in the Gospel of Luke. This is a story that no other, other gospel writer tells. Only Luke tells this story. And that's because I believe more than any of the other gospel writers, Luke wants us to understand that following Jesus will not separate us from people, but engage us with people. You see, Luke is the gospel writer who writes to the Gentiles, to the larger world. And this message that he wants us to understand is this. The things that tend to divide us and separate us in this world, on this planet where we live, Jesus, the gospel story, it tears down those walls. Jesus will break down walls and divisions and societal separations like nothing else in this world. That's way down deep in the heart of Luke as he writes today. He starts off this somewhat strange encounter this way. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is not an expert in the law the way we would think of one today. This is not a lawyer in the same way we think about a lawyer. This is an expert in the law of the scriptures. This is a highly respected, very well studied Old Testament scholar who comes to Jesus and he wants to see if he knows his stuff. And he kind of has this ulterior motive of putting Jesus on the spot that he might make a fool out of him or, or, or disrespect him in front of the people in some way. And so he asks Jesus this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want to say a quick word here before we move on about what he's actually asking. 
Because most of us will read this question through our 21st century American evangelical lenses. But I want to assure you that the question he's asking is not simply, how do I get to heaven when I die? It's not the entirety of the question. You see, for the Jews, when they talked about eternal life, it did involve an eschatological or end of time uh, blessing from God that was eternal. But it also included this question. Eternal life for the Jews was about how do I live with God now? How do I live in step and in tune and in harmony with the almighty God of the universe here, now, on this earth and enjoy the rich, full life of significance and meaning that He wants me to live? How do I have eternal life now and forever? That's the question. That's the big question. And Jesus responds, What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? It's kind of funny that Jesus would like pass the question off here. This is the big moment. This is the big question. This is perhaps the biggest question of all, right? And Jesus says, let's hear from this guy. (laughs) It's not really what you expect from Jesus. But what's beautiful about Jesus in this moment is that he's always doing more than we can see. He's always teaching on multiple levels, multiple things at the same time. This is not a one-dimensional conversation. This conversation has layers to it. And right away, what Jesus is saying to this guy is, hey, let's talk first about you. Let's talk first about your answer to this question. Let's talk about your worldview, what you believe, because I know what you believe. I know where you will place your hope for finding eternal life. I know that you'll look for that in the law. I know that you'll search for that in your ability to keep the law. So before we get to my worldview and what I think, let's look at you. According to your belief, how does one inherit eternal life? And so now the guy answers. I mean, this is his moment, right? Jesus asks him. He's on the big stage. Everyone's listening. His chance to impress. He answered, verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty good answer, right? I mean, I'm thinking to myself, this guy hit a home run. He may not be as far off as we, as we think. Uh, that would be a pretty solid response. If Jesus asks you and you came up with that in the pressure moment, I'm thinking, whoa, perk up your ears. This guy may have something to say. But all of a sudden, this is where the story starts to take a little bit of a turn. And now Jesus, in response to this seemingly wonderful answer, will throw his first jab and offer his very first challenge. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Now, I don't exactly know the tone of Jesus here. I don't know the tone of his voice in this moment. But I imagine there was a bit of a question, maybe a little hint of sarcasm, um, as he spoke these words to this man. Do this, and you will live. He doesn't say, read this. He doesn't say, say this. He doesn't say, affirm this. He doesn't say, embrace this with your mind. He says, do this. You see, this is a passage. This is a story about what it means to live out our convictions, to live out the gospel in this world in a way that reflects the heart of God. There are a couple things going on. First of all, the challenge he offers this man has to do with this question. Actually living this way, is it possible Can you literally, as a fallen, sinful human being, live up to this command that you've laid out here before everyone? I mean, 
Can you, if your relationship and status before God depended on it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Can you do that? Actually, let's just take a quick survey. Anyone in here feel like they're doing just a stellar, like near 100% job at loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves? Anyone? Any high school kids willing to just be obnoxious today? No. No one can live up to this command. No one can live out this law. You see, if your relationship, if your standing before God is based on your performance, your ability to pull this off, to put it theologically, you're in deep doo-doo. You see, Jesus, what he's doing on one layer here, on one level of this conversation, he is challenging the foundation of this guy's righteousness. The very thing that his status before God sits on is this law and his ability to to, to follow it. And Jesus is just chipping away at this guy's worldview and the worldview of so many that were listening. But at the same time, the other thing that he's doing that we often miss in this story is that when we really look at the answer that this law expert gives, you know, love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, neighbors yourself, it was actually not that fantastic of an answer. It was actually fairly common. Actually, it was the answer that everyone would have given. The passage that this guy quotes is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it's a famous Old Testament passage called the Shema, and it was the basic and essential creed of Judaism. In fact, it was the very first text every Jewish child committed to memory. It was the passage every Jewish worship service opened with. It was the verse every observant Jew would have recited twice a day. The first thing they said when they got up, the last thing they said when they went to bed. In Jesus' day, reciting these words, saying the Shema, was supposed to mean renewing your relationship with God. Whenever a person spoke these words, said the Shema, they were supposed to be celebrating this covenant relationship they had with their Heavenly Father. And yet... For the religious leaders and for so many people of Jesus' day, this statement, this sacred statement, Shema, had simply become routine and ritual and religion. And another one of the layers that Jesus is just peeling back as we get farther into this dialogue here is that our relationship with God must never just become a a simple system of empty routines, statements, and beliefs. Our relationship with God must never devolve into stuff we say, stuff we think, but stuff we don't live. And that was not just a statement for them back then. Luke includes this story because he wants to drive this message deep into the heart of the church. So Jesus says, do this and you will live. You can quote Shema, but do you believe Shema, receive Shema, know and experience the truth of Shema? Do you truly seek to live what you are saying? Because friends, here's the deal. God can care less if you can recite some statement. And I'm pretty sure he's not that concerned about the verses that are etched on the walls of our sanctuary. But here's what he's after. Here's what he wants. He wants these words etched on our hearts. He's real concerned about the fact that he wants these words etched on our lives. Is this something you will live and not just say? Verse 29, 
But he wanted to justify himself. So you can tell that right away Jesus has sort of poked at this guy, jabbed him a little bit, challenged him, because what's his response? He wants to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, let me just stop here for a second and ask this. When do people feel the need to justify themselves? Like, when you feel the need to justify yourself, what's generally happened? I'll tell you what happens with me. I'll tell you when I feel the need to justify myself. I feel like I need to justify myself when I'm challenged. I need to justify myself when I'm accused. I need to justify myself when I'm wrong and someone says that I'm wrong, generally my wife. I need to justify myself when this little thing deep inside me starts to well up called pride. That's when I start to justify myself. Friends, so often in our lives, God challenges us and corrects us, and we respond in exactly the same way as this law expert. We respond just like him. And instead of just receiving what God would offer us and in humility, embracing it and, and, and trying to let him change us, we respond with pride and we try to justify ourselves. Let me just get personal here for a minute. Let me ask you this, church. Where in your life are you trying to justify yourself to God? Where are you trying to just say, Lord, here's why. Here's the deal. Here's why it is the way it is. You know, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Carl, I listened on the podcast, and he talked about pondering and postponing. He talked about how like, sometimes when God challenges him and he hears, like, feels like God's trying to move him in a certain way, his, his response will be like, well, let me ponder that. Let me just sort of postpone decision and delay with the hopes that maybe if I ponder and, and postpone long enough, the sort of conviction will just sort of simmer out and fizzle out and will just go away. And when I heard Carl say that, I thought, that's true, that's right. Carl does need to work on that. <laughs> In fact, Carolyn sent me a neat... No, I'm just kidding. She didn't. No. When I heard Carl say that, I thought, you know, that's so true. That's so true of me. But you know what happens with me? I'll even take it a step further. As I ponder and as I postpone, you know what starts to grow in the midst of that delay? Justification. Oh, you know, the more I think about it, there's good reason why I shouldn't or I'm not or I did or I will. You see, in the midst of postponing and pondering justification starts to grow. God, you know, I would do that, but... God, I certainly should not have blank, but blank. Lord, I will certainly engage that at some point, but let me tell you why that's just not a realistic thing for me right now at this point in my life. Lord, I'm sure you understand. I'm sure you're looking at the facts just like me. Okay, I know we're on the same page. Friends, Where is God calling you to something? Calling you to serve, give, forgive, love, sacrifice, trust, risk, embrace. And in response, you are simply justifying your current behavior or lack of response. Is there something at work? An attitude or behavior that you've taken on with a coworker or your boss? Or maybe it's at home. Maybe it's an attitude or behavior that you've sort of postured with your spouse, and there's all sorts of reasons, there's all sorts of excuses why it's okay to act the way that you're acting. Maybe it's a habit that you're engaged in, or a habit that you're not engaged in. A million excuses, you've got them all, you've laid them out. But God just keeps saying, I hear what you're saying, but but here's what I'm calling you to do. Here's how I'm calling you to change. Here's how I'm calling you to respond. Friends, 
This man, he just justifies himself. And I have to wonder, how would this conversation have gone if instead of in pride, he'd responded in humility? Instead of trying to justify himself before the Lord, he'd just received what the Lord had offered him. I'll be to miss this great dialogue if he had, but it probably would have gone better for him. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, for the Jewish people, a neighbor was defined by the word re'ah, which is a Hebrew word, and it simply meant someone close by. But for them, a neighbor was very narrowly defined. A neighbor was someone from your country. A neighbor was someone from, for, from your tribe. A neighbor for the Jews was another Jew who was faithfully walking with and following God. Those people were their neighbors. Pagans... Gentiles, they were not Rea. Tax collectors, sinners, they were not neighbors. And, and maybe this is where the law expert thinks that he's got Jesus pinned down. He thinks this is where I'll trap him because he knows the kinds of people that Jesus hangs out with. Jesus' reputation goes way out in front of him. Jesus hangs out with those people, non-neighbors. I've got him now. And who is my neighbor, Jesus? Let's talk about the people we should love and be kind to and spend time with and embrace. Let's talk about your life. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, first of all, to understand these two cities, they weren't too far apart, about 17 miles, and... Uh, Jerusalem sat about 2,400 feet above the Mediterranean Sea. Jericho, about 850 feet below the Mediterranean Sea. And so when Jesus says the man went down, he's being very literal here. This is a long, very steep, downhill, 17-mile walk. And, And this road that you see here, some pictures of it, it bends and it curves and it twists and it winds for these 17 miles through this desolate desert mountain region. And scholars tell us that it's actually more of a windy path than a road in so many places. And in Jesus' day, it had a very well-known reputation. This was one of the most dangerous roads in the region. This was a road that you did not want to be on after dark. You did not want to be on it alone. Maybe a modern-day parallel would be like saying... A pastor and his father and three of his kids got off the bus in New York City and tried to find the nearest subway. They ended up walking right through the heart of downtown Harlem. actually happened to me this week, and so um, much to the chagrin of my aunt, who was very concerned about that, and we walked right through downtown Harlem, found this awesome little New York deli, went in, had some just... It was excellent. That's another sermon. But yeah, so but if you heard if you heard someone say, Hey, there was this these people, these children, and they walked right through the heart of downtown Harlem in the middle of the night, instantly you'd think what? You'd think, Uh oh, I know where this story's headed. Something bad's about to happen. And here's the point, friends. When Jesus tells this story, the entire audience knows something bad's about to happen. And the reason they know something bad's about to happen is this story is based in reality. Bad things did actually happen on this road. This is not a once upon a time in a land far, far away story that Jesus tells. This is not Alice in Wonderland. This is not Jack and the Beanstalk. This is a story based in reality. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's taking what this religious expert and so many others had turned into sort of an abstract theological concept. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Sort of this lofty idea. And he's saying, no, 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 no. This is not an abstract theological thing. This is a very real, real life, real world thing. This is something that we're not supposed to discuss and ponder. This is something we are supposed to actually live in this world where we are. And so he tells this very real, close-to-home story to illustrate it. This guy's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus says that robbers jump out and they beat him and they strip him and they leave him half dead and the crowd's going, well, of course they did. What was he doing out on the road by himself? This is exactly what everyone knew would happen. And then Jesus continues. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, a couple things here. Priests were part of the upper class. More than likely, this guy is is on a a horse. He's probably riding down the road. We don't know, but most likely. Scholars also tell us that the majority of priests lived in the city of Jericho. And here's how it would work. If you were a priest, you had this kind of two weeks on, two weeks off shift. Kind of like firemen, right? Like you're on, you're off. So this priest would spend two weeks at the temple where he would be serving and doing his priestly duties, helping people worship and and, and, um, sacrifice things to God. And then he would go home for two weeks to the city of Jericho. And so again, a very real-life situation. This priest is done with his work. He's just finished his two-week shift sacrificing animals and helping people connect with God and atone for their sins. And now, after completing his highly touted religious work, he is headed home. So it's kind of generic, but a modern-day parallel to this story would be sort of like, hey, after church on Sunday, a pastor was driving back to his house. After standing before his congregation and waxing eloquent about loving God and living for Christ, a pastor was on the road, headed home. And then what do we read, right? So, in other words, if you're the person in the ditch, if you're kind of that person, and you look up and you see this priest coming, you're thinking, man, it's been a bad day. Things have not gone my way. Finally, I've caught a break. This is like the best person I could have possibly hoped for. It could be coming down the road. This is like Pastor Carl coming right down the road. I told you I was going to pick on you today, Carl. That's what happens when you preach. And what does Pastor Carl do? He goes right on past. (laughs) Cheap shots, man. Cheap shots. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, if a priest was kind of at the top of the religious food chain, the Levites were just one notch down. Levites were the descendants of Levi. Priests were the descendants of Aaron. And Levites were sort of like the lay assistants to the priests. These are like the top lay people in the church. So again, this would be kind of like seeing one of our elders come walking down the road. And you'd be thinking like, man, Carl didn't help me, but whoa, it's Tom Stevens and Pete Amon. What? This is great news. Surely Tom will help me. He loves foster kids and stuff, right? And then Jesus says, what happens? They go right on past on the other side of the road. Unbelievable, Tom. (laughs) Now, one of the things Jesus' audience would have been very aware of, and you probably are too, but I want to point it out to you, is sort of the declining level of spiritual status and religious reputation these people would have had. So right off the bat, everyone is sort of starting to understand, this is a story about who we think matters... And who we think doesn't. Who's on top, 
who's sort of getting it right, who's doing the best in the loving God game, and who's on the bottom. And as we'll find out, what Jesus is going to say is this, if you're going to live like me, if you're going to walk with me in my kingdom, then you are going to have to start to rethink your assumptions about who it is that's living for God and what it means and what it looks like to actually be God's people in the world. Verse 33, and now the assumptions will all come crumbling down. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. We'll come back to that. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now the alcohol and the wine would have very practically disinfected the injuries, and the oil would have acted sort of like an ointment to protect and keep dirt out, provide some healing. But most importantly, what most of Jesus' listeners would have caught on to is the fact that these were the elements of worship in the temple. These, this, this oil and wine were actually the tools that the priest and the Levite would have used to facilitate the worship of God back in Jerusalem, back at the temple. And the message here, friends, loud and clear is this. Real worship of God is not simply found in some religious act Real worship of God is found when that act spills out into the lives of helpless, hurting people all around us. You see, do what you want with wine and oil in the temple on the altar, but unless it translates to helping someone who's hurting and needy and destitute out in the real world, then it doesn't mean a thing. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, the Samaritan took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, this point of the story is obviously meant to highlight the extreme, extravagant love and grace that this Samaritan has as he cares for this man. Uh, When he puts him on his own donkey... To ride a donkey was a place of status and significance and stature. And the person who would lead the donkey, like pull it along, was always a servant. And so now this Samaritan has sacrificed this place of honor and glory for a place uh, of serving. But let's talk for a second about why this behavior would have been so shocking to the Jewish audience. Samaritans were despised people, friends. I don't know if I can possibly communicate to you how much the Jews hated, loathed, despised the Samaritans. Samaritans were actually descendants of of the Jews who in the northern territory, when the Assyrians came and took over, they compromised. Instead of remaining pure and faithful to God and to the Jewish nation, they intermarried with pagans and they uh, wove pagan religion and worship into the very pure and set-apart worship of Yahweh. These were traitors. These were people who had abandoned the true faith. That was the Samaritans. Friends, the the hatred and violence uh, experienced between Samaritans and Jews, the the best example I can give today would be like the relationship between the Palestinians and Israel. Like that much hatred, that much animosity, that much baggage. That's what's happening here. And, and, and And I'll say one thing here too. Perhaps the reason that this example is so challenging to us today is that the Samaritans got it wrong. 
In this passage, Jesus isn't saying like, hey, the new religion of the Samaritans, the way they're living their lives in this immoral way, it's great, it's awesome. In fact, in other places in the scripture, Jesus makes it very clear that they are not worshiping, that they are not living in the correct way. Jesus is not saying the Samaritans get it right. What he's saying is, in spite of how they live, in spite of the fact that they do get it wrong, in spite of the fact that their their ideas and beliefs and understandings and lives are completely off track and, and utterly morally corrupt in spite of that we should love them anyway you see friends one of the core points of this story is simply this others actions don't determine our love Jesus doesn't come and say hey love all the people who treat you good Love everyone who agrees with you. If they look like you, act like you, vote like you, talk like you, then love away. But if they're outside the box, despise them, hate them, ridicule them, ignore them. No. He says, our love isn't contingent upon their behavior. We love for free. We love because he's first loved us. Friends, let me ask this, again, very personal question. Is there anyone in your life you need to apply that truth to today? You see, sometimes I think the reason this story is well-liked by us is it doesn't come across as very convicting. I mean, I'm like, I don't have any Samaritans in my life. I don't have any, like, mortal enemies. There's no one who has, like, killed my children and I hate them and loathe them and if I saw them on the street, I'd take them out right then. I don't have people like that in my life. I'm assuming most of you don't either. I mean, there's no Lex Luthor or or the Joker or Heinz Doofensmertz in my life. Maybe in yours. But for most of us, there's not. So it's kind of like, oh, okay, if I ever meet a Samaritan, I should probably be nice to him. Got none of those. Friends, not the point. Maybe there's someone that you don't hate, but you've got some bitterness towards them. Maybe there's a relationship in your life where you're harboring some resentments. Maybe you've got some lingering hostility towards a person or towards a group of people. Maybe they did something wrong. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe they deserve it. Jesus says, that may be true, but on this journey, if you want to learn to live like me, others' actions don't determine your love. And I guess I'll take a moment here at this time to stop and just say a word about the events of this week. Most of you know that the Supreme Court made some decisions this week about gay marriage. And there were a lot of comments made, a lot of banter, a lot of dialogue, a lot of hubbub. If you went on social media, it was all over the place. And I read comments from Christ followers and non-Christ followers all day Friday, all day Saturday, And as I read those comments and those remarks and thought about things and studied for the sermon, my conviction is this. In light of our passage today, I think it's important, probably most important, to ask this question. How do we respond? How should we respond? How do we, as followers of Jesus Christ, respond to people that may have different ideals, morals, values, lives than you and me in any and every arena? Because here's what I believe, friends. We are increasingly living in a culture where the opportunity, hear that word, where the opportunity to show amazing love and grace to people not like us abounds. There's never been a greater, more opportune day in all your life to be a Christ follower, 
to shine and love radically people that are different than you, that think differently than you, that live different than you, that promote ideas and morals that are different than you. Jesus says, every single time you bump up against those kinds of folks, you have an opportunity to live the gospel in an amazing way, the same way Jesus lived it. You know, I I, I read some comments by some Christ followers, and I thought, are we following the same Jesus right now? I don't know. And let me just, in as bold and compassionate and graceful way as I possibly can, just call this church to something more. Maybe the best statement I read in the last two days was a guy who's kind of a loose friend of mine. He's actually a pastor back in the Midwest and he used to pastor at a church where I was and he wrote this on his Facebook page. This is maybe the best thing that I've heard. He wrote, My mission as a Christ follower has not been altered. I have been commanded to love the world generously, redemptively, compassionately. Nothing changed with this ruling from the Supreme Court. Grace wins. Others' actions don't determine our love. Now, I'm going to move us on here, but before I move us on from kind of the Samaritan story, I want us to notice something else. I want you to notice one more thing about this story that maybe you've, you've missed in the past. Maybe you haven't, maybe you have. I want you to notice that in, in this story that Jesus tells, it isn't actually the Samaritan who receives the help. It's the Samaritan who's... Giving the help, isn't it? You see, what Jesus does here is actually amazing because he doesn't really answer the question the guy asks. He changes the question. He doesn't say, hey, if you were walking down the road, would you be like the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan? You see, I don't know about you, but when I read this story, I instantly want to put myself in the like helper camp. Which person would I be if I was walking down the road? But the way Jesus tells the story, you're not one of those people. You know who you are? You're the guy in the ditch. And even though the question by the law expert is, you know, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, well, if you were in the ditch, which one of these three people would you like to see coming down the road? Would you like to see a priest? Would you like to see a Levite? Would you like to see a Samaritan? You see, what Jesus does here is so phenomenal because he makes their enemy, the other, that person, those people, the hero. You want to know why Jesus was so offensive to people? Because he took their worst enemy and in his, in, in his stories, in this moment, he says, that person is the person who embodies the heart and life of God more than anyone else. He doesn't say, could you possibly bring yourself to love someone like that? He says, no, that person loves, loves God and embodies God so much that they represent him to you. <gasps> Whoa, are you kidding me? No wonder they crucified that guy. It just kind of rocks me. And I, and I think one of the, the sub-points of this text that we have to wrestle with is that God can choose to use and show love and advance His purposes in this world in ways sometimes that go far beyond the people we have put into specific little religious categories. He works far beyond what we could ever possibly imagine. You see, the law expert says, who is my neighbor? But Jesus ends up showing him what neighboring actually looks like. You see, for Jesus, neighbor, neighboring, is not a noun, it's a verb. It's not who is my neighbor, but how can I neighbor? That's the right question. No, 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 you got the wrong question, man. Not who is your neighbor, how can you neighbor? 
Which one of these people actually embodies neighboring the right way? And then now how can you go and live like them? That's the question and answer. And now, at the end of this dialogue, it's Jesus' turn to ask the question of this law expert. And to verse 36, he says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Now, I find it interesting that he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. (laughs) I don't know if there's a theological point there or not, but the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and live this gospel, this message that I'm offering you. Don't just know, don't just recite, don't just go through the motions. Live this out in the real world. You see, here's what it is that separates the Samaritan from the priest and the Levite. All three characters walk up. They all see, they all notice the guy. They all see him laying there, half dead, abandoned, beaten on the side of the road. What separates the Samaritan from the priest and the Levite wasn't his title, it wasn't his reputation, it wasn't his doctrine about God, it was his mercy. It was his compassion. It says, the one who had mercy on him. That's the real neighbor, right? Back to verse 33. It says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he had what? Pity. You know what that word pity is? It's the Greek word, splachnizomai. It's one of my favorite, like, it sounds like Star Trek, which I kind of like, like a word the Klingons would use. Um, I've talked about it before. It's one of my favorite New Testament words, splachnizomai. It's a word that literally means compassion that comes out of your guts. Compassion that cannot stay inside of you. A, a friend of mine uh, one time, years ago, was given a talk at a youth gathering, like a big youth conference, and he did an entire message on this word splachnizomai. It shows up 11 times in the New Testament, and he spoke for about 30 minutes on it, and throughout the entire message, he just kept drinking this half gallon of milk. So he's talking about splachnizomai, and what it is, this compassion, and he'd drink the milk, drink the milk, drink the milk, and after about 25 minutes of the message, he's drinking almost the entire half gallon of milk, and those of you in here who are kind of like, like nurses and in tune with your body, you know this, your body cannot handle that much dairy. It is impossible for you to keep that much dairy, that much milk inside of you. So about minute 25 of this message, he talks about splachnizomai. He has this giant trash can on stage and he falls and he just turns and like ralphs up all the milk right in front of all the kids. Like, and he comes up, splachnizomai, right? And he's like, compassion that is so amazing, that is so inspiring, that you believe so deeply that you cannot keep it inside of you. And those kids never forgot that sermon. And I was going to do it today, but I decided I'd spare you that. um, Because those parents never let those kids go back to that camp again. And what he told those kids today is, I think what Jesus is trying to say here, when you have Christ in your life, when you are walking with and listening to and yielding to the Holy Spirit, compassion is not just something you feel, it's not just something you think about, it's just something you entertain with your mind. It comes pouring out of you because you cannot keep it in, no matter who it is who's on the other side of that road. This passage, friends, is not just about feeling the gospel, or believing the gospel, or even proclaiming the gospel. It's about living like Jesus. Because when you think about it, that's exactly what this story is. The story is the gospel, isn't it? Think about the robbers. They rob the man, they abandon him, they leave him there dead and dying. 
The Samaritan comes, rescues him, he pays the price for him, he leaves him taken care of, and then he promises, I'll be back, I'll return. Friends, does that sound like anyone you know? Friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. It's what Jesus has done for us. When sin robbed us of eternal life and left us abandoned to die, Jesus came and he helped us and he healed us and he gave us an identity. Even though we did not deserve it, he paid for us and then he promised, I will be back, I will return. You see how the story of the Good Samaritan is not just Jesus saying, this is how you can earn eternal life. Go and try and be really good to people so you can go to heaven. No, that's not, the, that's not the message. It's Jesus showing us how we can experience and be a reflection of the eternal life that we have already been given. When you've been given eternal life like that, and it gets, gets woven down deep into your guts, when you've experienced God on such a level that He's really inside of you, He just comes pouring out of you like that milk. right? All over the lives of people. That's an image for you to take home today. And so as you go from here this morning, let me just close by, by saying we're going to spend some time um, at the table. We're going to come and we're going to take communion. And I want to ask you to do two things today. First, I always want you to remember. Remember that you, you, your life, you're dead, dying, separated from the eternal, full, rich, blessed life that God wants. That's what sin has done, has done to you. And I want you to remember how Christ came saved you, rescued you, took the posture of a servant that you might be healed and restored and renewed. That's what we do in this meal. We come and we take the body and the blood of Christ and we remember how how God gave his life that we might be restored. But then, don't just think about that. I want to challenge you to do one more thing. I want you to think about one person. You see, I think the reason this passage is so often not lived out maybe the most well-known passage, the least lived-out passage in the entire Bible, is because when you think about this passage, it just gets overwhelming. How could I possibly live this way? How could I possibly meet every need of every person that I see in this world? I just can't possibly do it all. And so what we do is we do nothing. And the very story that was meant to actually bring following Christ down into the real world becomes again this sort of fictitious, hyperbolic, Theology, this abstract story that we never really live out. Here's how I think we can battle that. One person. One person who's a Samaritan to you, who is not like you, who's not one of your clan, one of your tribe, one of your people. One person who you wouldn't be inclined to help otherwise. But God has said, I want you to walk across the road, walk across the path, and serve them and love them in spite of who they are, in spite of how you think of them, and maybe the challenge is even to start to think about them differently and imagine that they might be a hero in God's story and God might actually use them to teach you something about Him. Who's the one person that you might be called to walk across the road to? So spend some time with the Lord. Remember him and all he's done. Think about your one person. When you're ready, come to the table. Paul and the team are going to lead us in a closing worship song. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your son. I just picture myself laying there completely annihilated by sin, my own selfishness, and the fact that you've so graciously restored me and received me and helped me, and that you're still nurturing me along in so many ways. God, 
Maybe a person who believes that and receives it on such a level that it comes pouring out of my life into the lives of others. Maybe we may be a community that promotes love and life and grace along with the firmly founded truth that we believe in. Help us be your people, God. That's our prayer. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.